This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and thanks for downloading the latest Rear Vision podcast. The recent elaborate three-day coronation of the new Thai king made me curious about the role of monarchies in Southeast Asia. This is what I learned. First, a purification using water blessed by Buddhist monks. The king remains something of an enigma here in Thailand, spending much of his time in Germany and just days before this coronation, announcing he'd secretly married his consort, a former flight attendant. A report from the lavish coronation ceremony last month of the new Thai king, Maha Wajiralongkorn. On this Rear Vision, we'll look at the role of monarchies in Southeast Asia, focusing on Thailand, but touching on Cambodia, Malaysia and Brunei. The Thai monarch is regarded as a divine embodiment of the gods, and Lay's Majesty laws make it a criminal offence to speak ill of the king. The current Chakri dynasty, of which the new king is the 10th, goes back to the late 18th century, and it survived the arrival of the European colonial powers, unlike many of its neighbours. Dr Patrick Jory is a Southeast Asian historian at the University of Queensland. What happens in the 19th century, as you say, the colonial powers move into Southeast Asia. It's a gradual process which accelerates in the second half of the 19th century. So the British eventually take over Burma after three wars and in 1885 abolish the Burmese monarchy. The French are moving into Indochina and by the 1880s the Vietnamese monarchy is more or less subject to French colonial power. The Thais are very conscious of what's happening and in 1855, another key turning point in modern Thai history, the Thai king, King Rama IV, or the king and I fame, signs a crucial treaty with the British. It's called the Bowring Treaty after Sir John Bowring, the British representative. And this basically gave the British what we would call today, you know, most favoured trading nation status with Siam as it was then. So from this period, the 1850s, Siam is drawn into the economic and also the diplomatic orbit of the British Empire. So Siam retains its independence and the monarchy survives through a mixture of luck, but also, I think, you know, a good diplomatic skills in dealing with the colonial powers. In the early part of the 20th century, King Chulalongkorn began a process of modernisation, creating two of the most powerful institutions in Thailand today, the army and the bureaucracy. The Thai king Chulalongkorn, probably the most famous sort of modernising king, creates a modern bureaucracy based on Western colonial bureaucratic administration. They recruit you know, large numbers of people into the army and into the bureaucracy, but the, the bureaucracy and the military are dominated by the princes. And over time, in the early decades of the 20th century, a lot of resentment builds up from commoners in the bureaucracy and in the military at these aristocrats that control the senior positions in the bureaucracy and the army. And this resentment, it's helped with revolutionary ideas coming out of Europe, both of the liberal and the socialist variety. And it culminates in 1932 with a coup led by commoner bureaucrats and military officers that overthrows the absolute monarchy. So Thailand's absolute monarchy ends in 1932 and it's replaced by a constitutional monarchy. The monarchy for the first time in Thai history is now under a constitution and theoretically under a national government. 1932 leads to a lot of instability between royalists and anti-royalist nationalists and it comes to a head in 1935 the king at the time, King Rama VII, is forced to basically flee the country. And for a period from the 1930s up until 19, about 1947, the monarchy is out of the picture, pretty much out of the picture. 
World War II and the invasion of what was then French Indochina by the Japanese in 1940 was the start of a grimmer kind of occupation in Southeast Asia. Within six months, the Japanese occupied the entire region of Southeast Asia, really effectively ending 300 years of European colonisation. Within six months, it's quite incredible. Because of the might of the Japanese military, there's nothing the Thais can really do. Initially, they put up a fight for a week or two, um, but eventually they realise that they've got no hope of resisting the Japanese military, and they basically sign an agreement which allows the Japanese to station troops on, on Thai soil, and it's effectively an alliance with the Japanese. After the defeat of the Japanese, of course, this discredits the government of the time. So that's a key thing. The second thing is that 1946, a very traumatic event takes place, and that is the death by shooting of King Pumipon's brother, King Anan, the king at the time, King Rama VIII. The death is referred to as a very mysterious death. Um, there are various theories of, of how he died. But what's important is that the death is pinned on the more progressive, sometimes Republican-minded elements of the government, in particular B.D. Phnom Yong, who led the uh, 1932 revolution, really, and is sort of seen as an anti-royalist. These are false rumours, of course, but he's forced to flee the country. One thing leads to another, and in 1947, there's a coup. As a result, some of the powers that had been taken away from the king with the end of the absolute monarchy in 1932 were restored. Some of the assets are returned to the monarchy. The constitution is changed to strengthen the powers of the monarchy. The monarchy itself is still quite weak at this stage. There's a new king, he's very young, inexperienced. The situation is still quite unstable. But 1947, as I say, is the beginning of the, or the restoration, really, of the monarchy as a kind of a central player in Thai political, social and, and cultural life, I guess. Yet another military coup in 1957 brought an end to the era of progressive democratic experimentation that had begun in 1932. Led by Field Marshal Sarit Tanarat, this coup enabled the king to rebuild the monarchy. Dr Craig Reynolds from the ANU. Field Marshal Sarit saw the monarchy as an institution that could help him. He had come to power in not terribly violent circumstances, but he was a pretty ruthless dictator, and he needed the king's prestige, he needed the prestige of the monarchy to back him and to give his government some luster. And uh, the monarchy was weak, the king needed patronage, and so there's kind of an alliance here. You could say that uh, the military and the monarchy are sometimes enemies and sometimes they are friends. Sometimes you want to make a friend of your enemy, and certainly that seems to be the case. And so in the 1950s and the 1960s, the Prime Minister, Field Marshal Sarit Tanarat, dispatches the king on overseas trips. He visits the United States. He came to Australia. There's a picture of the king and the queen being greeted by a koala. And these overseas trips enhanced the king's prestige. At the same time that this was happening, the king was also rebuilding the Privy Council, and it enhanced Sarit's prestige. The story of modern Thai politics is one of instability, military coups and intermittent civilian governments. King Pumipon, who ruled from 1946 until his death in 2016, rode this wave to the top of the power structure in Thailand. In the late 60s, early 1970s, there's an increasingly influential student movement, influenced by particularly leftist ideas. And there's an uprising, a famous uprising in October 1973. It's another one of those key turning points in Thai history. There's a massive uprising, hundreds of thousands of, of people in the streets, students, workers, call for the overthrow of the military regime. And uh, the military, as they do, 
open fire on the protesters. It looks like a bloodbath. And the king steps in, King Pumipon, King Rama the Ninth steps in and basically mediates between the students and the military, which ends with the military leaders having to leave the country. And of course, this makes King Pumipon very popular and he is seen as restoring democracy to Thailand after 16 years of military dictatorship. So in 1973, the king is seen as supporting the democratic forces. Now, in this period, 73 to 76 is this key period as the war in Indochina is winding down. The communists come to power in 75 in Vietnam, in Cambodia and in Laos. This really spooks the Thai, not just the monarchy, but the conservatives in Thailand. And the country becomes very polarised between left and right. Eventually, this leads to another key event in October 1976, where students who had gathered at Thammasat University in Bangkok to protest the military regime are massacred by right-wing paramilitaries with close links, actually, to the monarchy and police units. And the same day in the evening, there's a military coup and the military take over again. And the new prime minister who's installed is a very conservative lawyer who's handpicked by King Pumipun. So we can see the king or the monarchy now switches back to the right and back to the previous setting, if you like, of this close relationship between the monarchy and the military. Thailand has begun a year of mourning after the death of its revered king, who reigned for 70 years. Even after years of failing health, the death of King Bumipun Adunya Date has been a shock that's reverberated across Thailand. Thousands gathered at the hospital to say an emotional goodbye. Sad, very sad. Um, I'm crying three times, four times. The king's body will be moved from the hospital to the palace later today and Thailand will begin a year of mourning. It's not clear when Crown Prince Mahavajiralongkorn will ascend the throne. He's asked for more time to mourn his father. And now, more than two years after the death of his father, Mahavajiralongkorn is Thailand's new king. Will he prove as politically adept as his father? Pavin Chachawan Pungpon from Kyoto University's Centre for Southeast Asian Studies says that at the age of 66, the new king faces the challenge of reinventing himself. So when you become king at old age, you do not have much time when it comes to image reinvention. And in the Thai case, it's even more difficult because there is nothing to build on when it comes to reputation of the new king, because he has been a playboy for a long, long time. His current wife is the fourth wife. He had divorced the first three wives. Two of them ended quite badly as well. Most of the time he resides in Munich, in Germany. You know, I would say that Bangkok is no longer his permanent home. This is something quite strange as well to be a monarch of a country, but at the same time, you do not take Bangkok as your resident. But I mean, he spent most of his time in Munich, you know, because he wanted to do what he wanted to do. But then sometimes whatever he wanted to do has been caught by the media. For example, we would see some weird photo coming out of him wearing tiny crop top and also with fake tattoo on his body walking on the street of Munich. And I mean, this stands in stark contrast with another kind of image that he wants to promote, especially through the recent official coronation. He has this very unorthodox private life. He's had a series of wives mistresses, children by different mothers. He has a much more authoritarian type of personality. His father had a great popularity with a broad section of society, 
whereas his son just lacks that popularity. And I think this is this is a crucial point. Whereas the son now, King Wetrilongkorn, has done a good job at consolidating his power within a, a few years. He lacks that personal charisma that his father built up over you know many years on the throne. This king is much more closely associated military. He's quite capricious. I think some people may have expected that he may have just let other people run the show and he would just turn up for the royal ceremonies, but that doesn't seem to be the case at all. It looks like he will be very hands-on and he will do everything that's possible to preserve the monarchy. And when we say preserve the monarchy, I think, again, it's not the kind of monarchy, the sort of constitutional monarchy that we're familiar with in Europe or Japan, where they're basically just a cultural figurehead. In Thailand, that is just not the case at all. The monarchy, the military, the bureaucracy have basically run the show since, as I said, the late 1950s. From then on, although you've had periods of parliamentary government, the parliament has always been really subject to the powers of the military, the bureaucracy, and overseeing it all, the monarchies. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on RN, Radio National. We're looking at the monarchies of Southeast Asia following the recent coronation of a new Thai king. And now on to a very different constitutional monarchy, Malaysia, where there are nine royal families. Bridget Welsh is Associate Professor of Political Science at John Cabot University. Monarchies in Southeast Asia have their roots well before colonial rule. They became very powerful from the 15th century in particular across Southeast Asia, including in, in Malaya at that time, in part because of the role that they played in the areas associated with the trading empires. But after the 17th century, and particularly by the time the colonial powers came in the 19th century, many of the traditional monarchies were much weaker, in part because of infighting. And it was this infighting that allowed the colonial powers to basically play off different actors against each other and to, to take over parts of Malaysia and basically weaken the monarchies. Traditional authorities facilitated colonial power and at the same juncture lost a lot of their control over these territories to Western powers. From the 19th century, the British controlled much of the economic activity in what is now Malaysia, and the royalty was relegated to largely symbolic power. After the defeat of the Japanese and the end of World War II, the British restored the autonomy of the rulers of the Malay states. Malaysia is a little bit different than other Southeast Asian countries. So, for example, in Indonesia, we see fighting in the sense that there was a fight against the Dutch. In places like Malaysia and Singapore, a lot of this was actually something that was negotiated. And this is where local power and authority became very important in those sets of negotiations. And the monarchy began to serve as a vehicle for Malay nationalism. So, Many young bureaucrats, Malays who had been part of the colonial state, turned to the emergence of new political parties as well as traditional authority to assert their independence in a particular sense of perceptions of what those rights should be. And so the monarchy helped to reaffirm the importance of Malay nationalism, which is the positions of the Malay community, which is the majority of Malaysians, in consolidating their position in the post-colonial state as one of special positions, both over control over issues 
of religion, but also the position of the Malay community within what is now known as Malaysia. And this was consolidated and reaffirmed in the negotiations and the independence movement in the 1940s and 50s. The British wanted to allow all the different ethnic groups to have similar rights. And this was contested by Malay nationalists working with the monarchy to give a special position for the Malay community and to consolidate Malaysian politics very much along ethnic lines. Well, you have nine sultans across the Malayan peninsula. Michael Vatikiotis is a writer and journalist who's worked in Southeast Asia for more than three decades. They each in their own state ruler for their own state, and they nest within a sort of federal system. There is a revolving monarchy, if you like, of the country as a whole. So they take it in turns, each of these nine sultans of the Malay states, take it in turns to become the appointed king of Malaysia, which is a very traditional Western-style constitutional monarchy, so that the king opens parliament, the king signs off on important bits of legislation, but it's a, it's a traditional modern constitutional monarchy. There's a ruler's council that will actually meet and deliberate on important issues confronting the nation and has played a role, I think, in recent years in helping to moderate some of the worst moves towards religious orthodoxy in Malaysia, which is a mainly Muslim country. And so in many ways, the monarchs today, if you look at the positive role that they play in Malaysia, they're a bit of a check and balance at least in notional terms. The other side of the coin is that uh, you have nine royal families that are fairly wealthy and uh, a drain, if you like, on the public purse. Many members of those families are somewhat colorful, but they're sometimes often controversial. Um, They marry many, many times. They have big elaborate weddings. And in a country that has recently suffered from economic difficulties, they don't always set the best example. So there's tension between both society and the sultans and also the government, politicians and the sultans. And it's much more in the open in Malaysia, where you don't have the same sort of strict les majestés that uh, bars opposition or criticism of the monarchy in Thailand. There's quite a bit of criticism in Malaysia of the monarchs. Of course, the monarchs have an important status, are treated with great respect, but they behave more like commoners than you would see in, in, in other countries around the region. Brunei became independent in a solemn ceremony in the capital Bandar Seri Begawan at midnight last night, after nearly 100 years as a British protectorate. In a televised speech, Sultan Bokia named himself as Prime Minister and Minister of Finance and Internal Security. His father, who abdicated the throne in 1967, was made Defence Minister. One of the Sultan's brothers has been appointed foreign minister and another has been appointed minister of culture, youth and sports. Journalists in Brunei say the predominance of the royal family in the cabinet is not surprising, as under the constitution all political power is vested in the Sultan. Brunei, the tiny sultanate on the north coast of the island of Borneo, became independent on the 1st of January 1984. Wealthy because of its oil and gas, its population of 500,000 people live under Sharia law. Well, Brunei has a very different story. The Brunei royalty has played a much more powerful role in defining the Brunei modern state, in part because it was never a constitutional monarchy. There was never really other democratic forces. So Brunei's royalty 
basically has embodied itself with the contemporary state. And what that has meant is that we're talking about much more control and powers in the sense that Brunei is a modern sultanate, similar to what we find in parts of the Middle East. It is a acting royalty. And the royalty in Brunei has expanded those powers by intertwining the notion of the monarchy with the notion of religion and codifying this in the concept of MIB, the, the sense that there's connection between Islam and the Brunei royalty. And this, of course, has deepened um, most contemporarily with the expansion of the use of religious legitimacy through the introduction of Sharia law, which happened in April of this year. So we're talking about a very different entity from the perspective of power, because unlike in Malaysia, for example, where there are political parties that are functioning, the royalty makes most of the key decisions in Brunei and controls the financial purse strings of the state. And that's why we see, for example, the Sultan of Brunei is one of the richest people in the world because of those control of resources. Unlike Brunei, Cambodia remains a constitutional monarchy. During the 19th century, Cambodia's borders with Siam and Vietnam left its people and territory vulnerable to the predations of these stronger neighbours. It became a French protectorate in 1867 and then an independent constitutional monarchy under King Norodom Sihanouk in 1953. He abdicated twice, became prime minister in a repressive one-party state, fled the country after a military coup, only to return, initially to support Pol Pot's murderous regime, before again going into exile. His was a tumultuous reign. It's very interesting to look back at the life of King Sihanou. In fact, he had been on the throne in and out, in and out, you know, for 60 or 70 years. He only passed away in 2012. But during this period, Sihanou exemplified how the monarchy, once again, the ability to adapt itself, or in the case of Sihanou, adapt himself to changing political situation. At one point, he even abdicated, you know, in order to play politics. And then when politics was not on his side, then he went back to become king again. So you could see this kind of flexibility on the part of Sihanou. He also worked very hard, you know, together with civilian governments, and especially through the 1990s, when the Vietnamese withdrew its troops from Cambodia. Sihanou was one of those people who was working with ASEAN and also the United Nations in order to allow the election to take place. And after that, we knew that it was the beginning of the Hun Sen regime. And we can also see the gradual decline of the monarchy in Cambodia. In 2004, the king decided to abdicate because he was suffering from cancer. But nonetheless, he nominated his youngest son, King Sihamuni. In Cambodia, the coronation ceremony for the country's new king has begun. Prince Norodom Siamoni has begun the procession to the throne room of the royal palace, where he will be crowned later tonight. The prince asked for a low-key ceremony to mark his succession to the throne. His 82-year-old father, Norodom Sihanouk, abdicated due to poor health. So right now, when anyone talking about Cambodian monarchy, we would think about its role simply ceremonial. If the monarchy 
wanted to play politics, its constitutions, they do not allow the monarchy to play such role. Although Cambodia is nominally a democracy, its authoritarian Prime Minister Hun Sen has banned opposition parties and an independent media. What I'm trying to say is that Hun Sen has been quite a uh, cunning leader and one of the strategies for his longevity in politics basically to have to work with the monarchy because once again monarchy has long been symbol of national unity for Cambodia. If you manage to work with the monarchy then you might be able to get popular support from the people as well. Now after Susi Hano had gone so Hun Sen had to work with the new king, the current king, Sihamoni, which might be a bit easier because Sihamoni was very different from his father. In many ways, the father was such an active political player, but Sihamoni has not been like that. So when he had not been active enough, there's a chance of him being manipulated by politicians, which I think this is the case right now. So what I'm trying to sum up here is that the current government perhaps sometimes exploit the position of the monarchy in order to, to legitimize itself and also legitimize other policies. One of the things that came out of Cambodia, which I find it quite worrying, is recently the government had enacted less majesty law. Less majesty law has been designed to, to prevent anyone from criticizing the monarchy. But this law basically, as evident in the case of Thailand, it's not really meant to protect the monarchy, but it has become a political instrument to undermine political opponents. Anyone who has been accused of insulting the monarchy could be arrested. So, I mean, that's why it, it has become such a dangerous political weapon. And I think this has become the case in Cambodia when the monarchy has been politicized, being used by certain groups in politics in order to undermine other groups. Cambodia remains notionally a kingdom, but the king is very much uh, a poorer shadow of his Thai neighbor. And that was because the monarchy in Cambodia, very much from the 1950s and 60s under King Sihanouk, diminished itself with very much a sort of Theravada Buddhist king, similar to Thailand, but involved himself in politics. And thus, I think, transferred a lot of that authority to the political realm and in the case of Cambodia today, there are very strong institutions of, if you like, checks and balances, so that there is a, a way in which the king should be able to provide some sort of balance in the political sphere, but it's rarely used. And it's not very effective, and the current monarch is not very assertive. But the institution exists and is, is valued in Cambodia, and it's seen as one of the more successful modern monarchies in the sense that it survives as an institution. Monarchs of Southeast Asia rule over nations both Buddhist and Muslim. One has little political power, another absolute. There's tension in the democracies over the monarch's role, but in all four countries, these monarchies, some which stretch back hundreds of years, have survived. But will they last? How long they can survive? I think it depends on three factors. One is personally. These kings, sultan, from now on have to prove that they are legitimate, that whatever they do, it has to be accountable, responsible. I am not so sure, though, in some country that it will survive. In Thailand in particular, there is no sign that the king in Thailand would want to be transparent and would want to be accountable. Secondly, I think the monarchy we have to work with 
key institution in politics, especially have to start to work with democratic forces. Maybe not in the case of Brunei, since it's still an absolute monarchy. Lastly, you have to appear to be acceptable by the international community too. In the case of Brunei, I think monarchy had become under intense pressure because they continue to behave badly, but at the same time, international community would not put up with it. When they enacted a new law, stone-throwing at homosexuals in Brunei, it became an outcry at the international level, and then Hollywood and also certain governments started to boycott Brunei. That caused an, a huge impact for the government to reconsider that law. So I think coming down to three factors, personally working with local institutions and being accepted at the international level, these would be the three main important factors should monarchies in these four countries survive. Parvin Chachawan Pungpong from Kyoto University's Centre for Southeast Asian Studies. The other guests were Associate Professor Bridget Welsh from John Cabot University and Dr. Patrick Jory and Michael Vatikiotis, both writers of books about Southeast Asia. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.